Welcome to the 2015 Faith Forward podcast series. The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 Faith Forward gathering, April 20th through 23rd at St. James Cathedral in Chicago. During these four days, hundreds of conversation partners from around the world and spanning dozens of denominational traditions gathered to equip, resource, and inspire one another toward innovative theology and practice in ministry with children and youth. This podcast episode features Almeida Wright's presentation at this gathering, which she titled, From Florida to Ferguson, Youth, Violence, and a Theology of Abundant Life. privilege to be with you guys again. I was a part of the Faith Forward, I think then it was Children, Youth, and a New Kind of Christianity Conference in D.C., I guess the inaugural event in 2012. And so it's amazing to have a chance. Evidently, I didn't put my feet in my mouth that far, so Dave, you know, invited me back. But this morning, I actually want to talk a little bit about something that's been close to my heart for a while, but that I don't really have the places to talk about it often, so you're, you're guinea pigs in some ways. You're going to be my thinking partners and some friends who are going to help me wrestle with some tough issues. I have been studying the spiritual lives of young people now for the last 12 years officially. And the catalyst even for me going to divinity school was primarily to make sense of the assumptions that people were raising about young people, the questions, because I didn't have um, Professor Bunge as one of my professors or, or people who were opening up these ideas, these different concepts. And so I went to divinity school primarily to wrestle with some of these things. And after years, I came forward still in all of my youthful hubris thinking, my work is to help kids. And I was like, that's not such a bad idea. But the truth of the matter is that lately, I've realized that my joy is figuring out the ways that young people help us, help adults, help religious leaders, help the body of Christ actually be better. And I've also recognized that as I listen to young people, because that's primarily what I do now. Yes, I get paid at Yale Divinity School to listen to young people. As I listen to young people, I find that I actually am getting moments where I'm brought up short, where I'm not necessarily sure what to do with what they say. And so, as I said, I'm going to invite you to think with me about the ways that we listen to young people and some of the difficult things that they say. Most recently, I've been listening to youth reflections about violence, in particular about the ways that violence intersects or does not intersect with their understanding of God, of humanity, of the general goodness of people, or even the afterlife. And so I want us to, to take seriously this moment. And I study African-American youth most often, and so ironically, maybe not, this issue comes up more and more. And so today, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about youth violence and a theology of abundant life through the narrative of young one, young one, um, young woman named Kira. I met Kira about five years ago. Kira was a rising high school senior when I met her, and now she's actually a senior in college. Kira was and remains an amazing young woman, but she grew up in this fairly impoverished and crime-infested neighborhood in Florida. Her parents were divorced when she was young, her schools were labeled failing, and many of her teachers were afraid to push too hard or try too much because it might attract more negative attention to an already bad situation. And Kira was more than aware of these perceptions about her community. She was attuned to the cycles of violence and death around her, and she recounted one set of incidents rather vividly when I first met her. She says, we were coming home from church, and we saw a bunch of police and everything, and I just overlooked it. And then I got to school, it was like Michelle got shot in the head. But I think people get so used to hearing about death that they become numb. So it wasn't any coming together to cry and moan, it wasn't that, it was just like we're going to hang up this big old piece of paper and give a shout out to Michelle, miss you. But then after that, another girl got shot. You know, she was walking home. She didn't die. So people get used to hearing about death, especially young death, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. There wasn't any remorse. It wasn't anything like, let's come together. And if I don't watch out, I might get numb to it too. Yeah. Listening with Kira was not all that I expected that it would be. I was brought up short. I sat with her in that moment in silence. I had an interview script, thank you, so that I didn't like have to sit too long. And so I'm trying to find my place and to get back to where we were. But somewhat off script, I asked her out of my own curiosity, Kira, how do you resist? How do you resist? the temptation to become numb. And somewhat unexpectedly and amazingly, Kira said she witnessed. I said, what? She said she attempted to build community and show her friends that they were loved. Now, I had to get beyond my initial perspective of what witnessing is and preconceptions about witnessing because Kira's main message to her friends with the, was that there was more to life than what was immediately around them. That was the good news that she wanted to share. She wasn't saying, come join my church or come, you know, confess Jesus, let me rock you down the Romans road, if any of you have ever experienced that. She was simply saying there's more to life than what's 
around us. There's more than failing schools. There's more than ineffective teachers. There's more than cycles of death. There's more than fear of retaliation and then more death. You see, the gloom and doom was not the most significant part of Kira's story. Kira exuded joy and positive energy that I could not figure out. Actually, I, I still haven't figured it out. And so as I listened to Kira, I encountered a young woman who embodied this theological concept of hope. She had such strong faith and such hope in God that gloom and doom could not hold her. Now, let's be honest. My suspicious, analytical, progressive Christian and academic self wondered if Kira was just buying into some pie-in-the-sky theology and just doing something to stick a Band-Aid on top of a bad situation. But it's interesting that I thought as have many others, that her joy and her hope might actually be the thing that would keep her from addressing problems. And I have to confess today that it's interesting that when a 16-year-old says she wants to walk around her community and her school and get to know people and tell people that they are loved by her and by God, I got suspicious. But when clergy in Boston do it, we called it a miracle in the 90s. When they did it in L.A., we call it homeboy industries. But I digress. And I also don't want this presentation to be about glorifying any one particular solution or simply saying that if you build community or have unity, then all violence is solved. That's not what I'm advocating. However, I am advocating in terms of how we reimagine youth ministry through through, through, through this idea of looking and listening with young people is to actually learn to listen afresh, to ask what was it about Kira, what was it about her faith, her life, her formation, and dare I say her theology that pushes us to reimagine the world. So Kira's theology... Kira kept challenging my assumptions and reminding me of the power of hope and faith and community building in the face of violence, poverty, and innumerable questions um, and innumerable injustices that most of us in this room have been spared from. And even as I followed the rest of my interview scripts and asked her about her understandings of the role of the church or God and the community and the world, I expected utter despair or even uncertainty. Because most of the time you ask adults that question, what's the role of God in the world? Uh, well, I don't know. Did I remind you that I work at a seminary in churches? And I still get these responses. But instead, Kira boldly stated in the way that only a 16-year-old can, that we are just vessels of God. And if we want to see a difference in the world, we got to let God work fully through us. Like we have to take the limits off. To go all the way out, we've got to let God fully use us to let a change happen. In that moment, I was floored, to say the least. 
but her narrative has since guided my theological reflections on youth and violence. To be honest, just as a footnote, I often wanted to go immediately to social gospel stuff. I immediately want to go to like, how do we dismantle the system? How do we address racism? How do we, how do we? But Kira said that there's something that's important to think about in addition to practical political responses. She says there's something about who we are as people of God and what God promises to us that pushes us and empowers us to persist even in the face of insidious cycles of violence. Kira pushed me to think about a theology of abundant life. What I heard when she was talking about taking the limits off was not just her parroting Israel and New Breed, but it's great music. But what I heard her saying was that there is a way in which our connection to the good news of Christ invites us to live in a different way. Kira's understanding of abundant life encapsulated a genuine concern for people, for their souls, a connection to the divine, and the ability to live peacefully in the community today. It included a robust hope, not simple wishful thinking, but a robust hope that things could get better. Kira taught me to rethink the power of hope and to wrestle with this theology of abundant life that takes seriously the violence among and against African-American youth. In other words, she made me ask the question of how do we affirm abundant life in the face of a world that loves death? How do we affirm abundant life? Do we proclaim it in a society that at every turn would get numb to young people and old dying? So fast forward five years from her town in Florida to Ferguson, from New Haven to Chicago, the statistics on youth-related violence are staggering. But beyond the numbers, which a Google search will quickly get you, around the country, in the US in particular in the last couple of years, young people have led the community, led the charge in some ways, and have protested and genuinely struggled to try to make sense of the death of Trayvon Martin, of Jordan Davis, of Renisha McBride, of Michael Brown, of Tamir Rice, and so many others at the hands of vigilantes and police officers. But equally significant, and I hold these two together, and many people criticize me for holding them together, but I do, I hold them together, is this complex conversation and protests taking place to make sense of the violence committed by young people against other young people. Within communities, both urban and suburban, both affluent and impoverished. As a country, recently, as I was pulling up, just doing a quick Google search as you try to find pictures and images, I remembered the shooting death of young people like Hadaya Pendleton back in January of 2013, and she made headlines only because 
and this is terrible also, we need to think about who makes headlines and who becomes a worthy victim. But she made headlines because she was killed only one week after performing at President Barack Obama's second inauguration. And she was shot only miles away from his Chicago home and only miles away from where we're sitting here today. And then yesterday, it feels like it's been a world ago, just Monday morning, I woke up as I was getting on my plane leaving New Haven to this picture. This is Jericho Scott. He was shot on Sunday afternoon just a couple of blocks from where I worship and where I serve in, at, at Yale Divinity School. Actually, when I don't want to deal with 95 traffic, anybody knows that Northeastern Corridor, 95 is the pit. When I don't want to deal with it, I, I cut through his neighborhood. And I also thought about it. Jericho was shot just sitting in his car, and I'm not even sure he would have made headlines either had he not made news a couple years earlier as a nine-year-old who was seen as like one of the best little league picture, pitchers. Almost so good that they were like banning him from, from playing. They're like, he's too good. So we have to wrestle with crime waves and a general sense of uneasiness as soon as the weather breaks. Because warm weather and school vacation is not a time to celebrate, but to fear what will happen to young people. <laughs> Saw this on Twitter, and at first I laughed and then I cried. Because the reality is when we ask young people some young people, what do they want to be when they grow up? It's not doctor, lawyer, ballerina, physicist. It's simply alive. The systemic causes and reactions to both types of violence, either at the hand of vigilantes or at the hand of other young people, are complex and troubling. The fact that narratives are often created such that African-American and minority victims of violence are vilified by the media before they are mourned is disheartened. Is disheartening. It's problematic that young people cannot have fear, have a, have a role or, or an idea that they can do whatever they want, but they have to fear just going to the local bodega. And it's also problematic, the easy narratives that we want to give them. We want to say, act better, be obedient, get good grades, pull up your pants, turn down your music, or go to church. And they're appalling, but listen carefully, they're repeated. And I had to think about this because I recognize that campaigns like Black Lives Matter are much more than a protest against police brutality or vigilante violence, but they're also this reminder that the church actually should have been leading, but we haven't. It's a reminder that young people of all colors, of all status, are somebody worthy of love, worthy of concern. And therefore, back to Kira. 
Kira's witness, her, her desire to witness in order to show her friends that they were loved and mattered to God looks a lot more radical than I initially gave her credit for. Her response of wanting to tell people you matter, you are important, there is a God in heaven and a person on earth who loves you is radical. Now, of course, as I listen to Kira, I told you I was inviting you into stuff that I'm not necessarily fully, like, I don't have the answers to this. It's not one of those cute rhetorical strategies that people give you and they're like, oh, walk with me, answer these questions. No, 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 that's not it. But as I listened to Kira, I had so many nagging questions, and they're questions I'll just put out there for you to keep thinking with me about. Questions like, what does it look like to take Kira's advice, to take the limits off in the face of seemingly insurmountable um, um, death and numbness to death? How did Kira grow in this type of faith? Like, like what did her parents do? What faith practices did she have? And how do we move from a world where Kira is an anomaly and not the norm? And do we want to? As I listened to Kira, I also listened, as a good practical theologian, you start in practice, you start in life, to the tradition. We take that move to the, to the theories and to the tradition. And so I looked at one of the places where, if you will, there's a scriptural understanding of abundant life. John 10.10 10 is the reference most often that we go to, and it says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Where and to whom does Jesus declare this? And are we thinking and reading this in the spaces that Kira inhabits? Are we able to say with her or ask with her, what does it mean for us to say that the thief is coming to kill and steal, but I, we, God, Jesus comes that you might have life and have it more abundantly. See, abundant life often gets co-opted or reduced to abundance. And we need to reclaim it. But the reason I don't actually criticize too quickly that abundant life gets co-opted with abundance because it's hard for us to imagine what abundant life might actually look like. Thomas Groom in his um, most recent text actually had this statement, says that his understanding of abundant life is that God intends the best of everything for everyone all the time and the integrity of God's creation. I read this to some divinity school students at Yale, and they all were like, because it's overwhelming. We have no capacity to even think of what this kind of world would look like. Then, of course, we do our analytical stuff and pick it apart. Well, what does he mean? But the picking it apart and the asking what does it mean and how do we operationalize this is because we can't even imagine it. It 
In other words, what Groom is saying here and what we see in the scripture and even in Kira's witness is that abundant life or the fullness of life is what God intends for all. This simple statement is overwhelming. It should be overwhelming, but it's the thing that in some ways Kira was saying is what we've got to hold on to. And here's the interesting thing, and I'm going to end here. I have always thought that it was ironic or problematic for me to try, or even disingenuous, to try to declare life or even abundant life in the face of despair. But what Kira helped me to understand, and I I hope will help you guys to understand, is that it appears that Jesus and Groom and Kira are all saying the same thing, that we actually only begin to fully understand what abundant life is or can be is when it's juxtaposed with this type of despair. The fact is that abundant life is the ability to keep living in the face of death, to thrive and experience the fullness of life even when death and corruption and violence are imminent and ever-present. Trust me, I I want a world where there is no more violence. I want a world where I don't have to, like, I I mean, just pick a day and and, and I'm going to get a headline where somebody, somebody near me has been shot. I I want that world where young people learn to persist and don't have to worry about being numb. But what Kira gives me is, is this encouragement and hope that paralyzing despair is not the only option. That there is something to be said about participating with her in this type of limitless, take the limits off hope and struggle towards abundant life. The realization of the reign of God on earth requires this persistence. And so even as I invite you to continue wrestling with the questions which emerged as I listened with Kira, I want to leave you with this. Can we listen to the public theological witness of this 16-year-old? Can we not become suspicious of it? And can we reimagine ministry with youth that is grounded in a theology of abundant life such that life is what we hold on to and not despair? The contents of this podcast episode are reproduced by permission of the presenter and Faith Forward under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations copyright. The Faith Forward podcasts are produced by Dave Sinis. Please stay tuned for more episodes of the Faith Forward 2015 podcast series on the web at faith-forward.net and join the movement at the 2016 Faith Forward Gathering, April 18th through 21st in Chicago.